There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm not sure there is that much scope for a dramatic trade deal with the United States. I'd be delighted to be proven wrong. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the acting editor of CapEx. Our guest this week is a true heavyweight of the British political scene. Sir Malcolm Rifkin spent more than a decade in Cabinet, from 1986 to 1997, beginning as Scotland Secretary under Margaret Thatcher, before going on to serve as Transport Secretary, Defence Secretary and finally Foreign Secretary under John Major. In 2010, David Cameron appointed Sir Malcolm to chair Parliament's Joint Intelligence Committee, with oversight of MI5, MI6 and GCHQ. In total, he served no fewer than 33 years in the House of Commons, first as MP for Edinburgh Pentlands and later in his career as MP for Kensington and Chelsea. I sat down with Sir Malcolm to discuss the changing role of the Foreign Secretary, how Britain should deal with a rising China and what the future holds after Brexit. Foreign Secretary, um, how would you describe that role and how have you seen it evolve over the years since you held the post in the mid-90s? Of course, it's one of the great offices of state. Uh, It goes back uh, 200 years. Uh, And Britain's international role has both gone up dramatically and then come down dramatically because of the end of empire. So the Foreign Office has always had new challenges, which it has a, a remarkable and impressive bunch of diplomats able to carry out. I think one of the sadnesses is that, of course, the Foreign Office is not always allowed to conduct foreign policy. Uh, That's not a new phenomenon. We are sometimes told, well, you know, it's Tony Blair or it's Boris Johnson or it's uh, whomsoever, uh, Brexit, that has eliminated the Foreign Office from the centre of foreign policy. You only have to go back to Neville Chamberlain, (laughs) uh, who, as Prime Minister, uh, had so much control over the appeasement policy that the Foreign Office was, under Anthony Eden, was uh, irrelevant. Um, in that sense. So fast forward where we are now, uh, I was very sad to see Jeremy Hunt uh, dismissed from the job. He'd only been in it a relatively brief time and I thought he was doing rather well. But to be fair to Boris Johnson, one impressive consequence of the change, and it could have happened with Jeremy still there, uh, is that the Foreign Office is now back in the centre of foreign policy. I also thought it was a very serious mistake of Theresa May's to um, create a separate Brexit department and not allow the Foreign Office to be directly involved in the central foreign policy issue of the last half uh, century. Uh, You could have done a situation similar to what we've done in the past. Uh, Brexit obviously required a full-time Secretary of State at that time, but it could have been someone who was a cabinet minister 
but a second cabinet minister in the Foreign Office. Uh, that's what we did when we negotiated our entry to the EU, and it seemed to work perfectly well then. So do you think the role of the Foreign Secretary changes depending on who the Prime Minister is and their own approach to foreign affairs? Yes, it, it, not so much their approach to foreign affairs, but their awareness and their respect and support for the idea that Britain benefits when the Foreign Office is strong. Now, it's a very different Foreign Office today. You go to the average British embassy around the world, and two-thirds of the people working there aren't Foreign Office. Uh, they're DFID, uh, Department of International Development, or they're Department of Business dealing with trade matters, uh, or they may be MI6, pretending to be diplomats, but actually doing uh, intelligence work, uh, or consular affairs, and, and, and so forth. But even in such a situation, whoever is the British ambassador in that post is the head person. He is the guy who not only a guy or a girl who carries the buck, um, but who also carries the greatest clout with the domestic government of the country that is being represented. Just one final point on the Foreign Office. One thing I was very pleased was when uh, Dominic Raab was not only made Foreign Secretary, but given the title First Secretary of State. And that sent a clear message that on the central issues facing this government over the next three months, uh, the Foreign Secretary as an individual and the Foreign Office as a department are right at where they ought to be, at the very heart of the discussions that will be taking place in Cabinet. And how do you see the government sort of positioning itself towards um, the United States? For example, we know that Dominic Raab, one of his first big meetings might be with um, his opposite number in Washington. Yes, I mean, very often the mistake that is made by foreign secretaries who have not previously served in the Foreign Office or prime ministers who are new to the job is that they assume that our partnership, our work cooperation uh, with the United States requires us to agree with them, either all the time or most of the time. And anyone who knows the history of this country knows that right back to Roosevelt and Churchill... Uh, what is often called the relationship, I try not to use that word, special relationship, Mm. that phrase, but the relationship has weathered perfectly satisfactorily when there have been blazing rows between the two countries, when there's been an honest difference of view. Churchill disagreed with Roosevelt on many issues regard to the the war. Uh, Harold Wilson refused to send troops to Vietnam against the wishes of Lyndon Johnson. Margaret Thatcher, who I served under as a Foreign Office Minister of State, Uh, had huge rows with Ronald Reagan, whom she admired enormously, but over nuclear weapons, over the invasion of Grenada, Mm. uh, and a number of other matters. Uh, She not only disagreed, but made it clear that she disagreed in her normal, robust uh, way. Uh, Tony Blair, I think, got part, part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason Tony Blair ended up with the mess of the Iraq war uh, was the belief that somehow, if he didn't support George Bush... Uh, that that would damage uh, his own influence with the White House. Absolute rubbish. The the Americans, whoever is the president, the Americans are mature enough to understand that another very mature democracy will occasionally have a different view because our geopolitical interests, although closer to those of America than most other countries, uh, nevertheless, we're not an American country. We're a European country in terms of geography, culture and history. And that's true whether we're in the EU or out of it. Do you think that role of being a critical friend will be more difficult if we want to get a trade deal after Brexit? I don't think it has the remotest relevance, to be perfectly honest. And I, you know, I know what President Trump has been saying, and it's all sounded very nice and very good, and he might even mean it when he says it, but that doesn't necessarily mean 
he will mean it a week or a month or a year later. But in any event, whether he means it or not, he will not be conducting the negotiations. Uh, Negotiations on trade are incredibly complex and detailed. They require specialist knowledge. And, of course, what makes them so complicated is you're not dealing just with one issue. You're dealing with the interest, let us say, just as examples of agriculture, uh, of the automobile industry, of IT, uh, of uh, chemicals, of uh, all sorts of different products, each of which uh, the Americans have their view and we have ours. And there are genuine differences. It's not just chlorinated chicken, you know, <laughs> that is the one that is... Uh, I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, well, quite. That, and, and the Americans will, yeah. as they would with any other country, like, this is not a criticism, the Americans will drive a hard bargain. They will make concessions, but they will want to be able to demonstrate to Congress that overall they've got more than they've given. And as that will be exactly what the British government is also seeking, uh, they can't both be right. So, you know, successful negotiation is when you get things you'd like, but you make concessions that the other side wants, but which are not that important to you. I'm not sure there is that much scope for a dramatic trade deal with the United States. I'd be delighted to be proven wrong. But in all the evidence, plus the conversations I've had with American trade Uh, officials and senior trade people and they say yes we can do a deal but don't be under any illusions it won't change the the world we live in and what kind of deal might that be in which sectors do you think it could cover and be done in reasonably swiftly well I don't know I'm not I don't claim to be a trade expert but I know where the Americans have been most frustrated with the European Union and that's in the agricultural sector Mm -hmm. uh, because of the common agricultural policy and because America is a huge Uh, exporter of uh, food uh, products. Now that immediately comes into a clash with the United Kingdom's views on health and safety standards and environmental standards uh, regarding our agricultural products. And not only has the government made it clear it will not uh, give up on those standards, it intends to maintain the same uh, safety and health standards, environmental standards as it does as a member of the European Union, Um, But that is a view which, in pure politics of it, they could hardly depart from without a a massive domestic political row, including from many of their own supporters. So that immediately kiboshes one major area where the Americans, in theory, would like to see huge change. I mean, uh, getting away a little bit from the sort of nitty-gritty of issues like a trade deal, where, where do you think... Britain should position itself once we have left the EU? Can we still be this bridge between Europe and, and the United States? Yes, we can, because we, were, we fulfilled that role before we ever joined the European Union. Uh, we had that role for several reasons, all of which remain as relevant as they were in the past. Uh, first, the obvious geographical factor. We are an island off the west coast of Europe. Uh, so we're slightly closer to America. But it's not just that. Being an island makes a difference. Uh, it's what General de Gaulle recognised when we first tried to join the European community. He said, of course, Britain's a European country, he said, when he was vetoing us. Uh, he said, but they're, we're, they're a different kind of European country. Think of Japan and Asia, also an island, but also the extreme of its continent. Uh, so, yes, Japan is an Asian country, but it's different to mainland uh, Asia. So... Uh, the United Kingdom's links with the United States are partly for that reason, 
but they're partly also linguistic and cultural. The English language, obviously, is a major factor. Historical, Americans were once colonies of the British. They were part of the British uh, Empire, and that has had a powerful impact on their political system, on their constitutional system, on their attitude towards the rule of law and the rules-based uh, community, at least until the Trump presidency. Uh, so that is important. But there is a final factor as well, again, which existed before we joined the European community and will exist afterwards, uh, and that is that not on all issues of a geopolitical importance or a, uh, strategic political importance, but on many, the UK is closer, it's really identical, but closer to the American way of thinking uh, than is continental Europe, uh, because it goes back to our imperial past, but it's also because of our maritime identity. Uh, we have a, a global perspective because as an island country we had little choice and have little choice in terms of our trade and in terms of our security and other factors. So that makes us not dramatically different but significantly different from continental countries who have faced threats to their security from other parts of Europe uh, rather than from other parts of the world. And we haven't, I mean, during all the Brexit discussions, we talked a lot about trade. We haven't talked that much about the UK's defence capabilities, and it doesn't seem to have been used as a kind of bargaining chip as much as it might have been. Um, how important do you think uh, our defence strength will be? Right, let me answer your question by combining defence with overall security issues, because the two are inevitably uh, linked. Frederick the Great, who I don't normally quote, Famously, one said that diplomacy without arms is like music without instruments. Uh, you need to have, even if you're not using your military, the fact they're there in the background can add strength on certain occasions to your diplomatic uh, negotiations. I'm not, that's not relevant to the Brexit negotiations, but it can be relevant in, uh, in other uh, areas. So I, I would want to make two points. Uh, first of all, uh, there is a, a huge question of how we continue to work extremely closely with France and Germany and other European countries if, stroke, when we leave the European Union. Because it's worth reminding ourselves that our differences over Europe have rarely applied in the areas of foreign policy. Mm. Uh, most of our differences have been on supranational questions of uh, political systems and um, single, policy, uh, single currencies and uh, a range of other issues of that kind. But on the objectives of Europe trying to develop uh, not a single foreign policy, because that's un impractical, but many areas of common European policy, uh, the Brits, under Conservative and Labour governments, have not been the awkward partners, quite the opposite. Uh, if you look, for example, in just in the last few years, um, on the Iran deal, uh, Britain, France, Germany, the rest of Europe, have tended to speak with a single voice, and that's continued right up to this day, including when Boris Johnson was Foreign Secretary and Theresa May was Prime Minister. Uh, likewise, on our attitudes towards free trade, uh, we have not the enthusiasm for tariffs that Mr Trump clearly has. We, tariffs haven't been, been an issue in British politics for 100 years, uh, since the 1920s. It, uh, belief in free trade covers everyone, including even Mr Corbyn and his colleagues, so far as we are uh, uh, aware. It applies to climate change. Uh, climate change, which increasingly cannot be divorced from for your wider foreign policy, uh, there's not even a, a serious, dramatic divide in British politics on climate change. There are individuals who take a different view, 
But overwhelmingly, certainly the government, and including Boris Johnson's government, are as committed to dealing with climate change as his predecessors, unlike the Trump administration. Another example is the American decision to move their embassy in Israel to uh, Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. We disagreed with them uh, on that. Now, now, these were all changes, uh, these were all differences, I should say, that we were not different just to be beastly to Mr. Trump. Far from it. It was a a UK government at that time led by Theresa May, but with people like Boris Johnson in the cabinet, who wanted to be very close to the United States, but on a sober assessment of our geopolitical and foreign policy interests, came to different conclusions. So, fast forward, how do we deal with that when we're no longer going to be part of a single decision-making body of European heads of government and Foreign Affairs Council? What we need, very briefly, is an EU plus one. It is for the, not on every issue of detail, but on the big issues of global policy. France, this is really France, Germany and the United Kingdom, have to continue to speak closely, coordinate closely, wherever they can. We're not going to be committed to reaching the same position. But on passport, most of the time, we will reach a common position. Why is this important? It's important because in a world that is globalizing, where these great superpowers, the United States, now China, (laughs) a resurgent Russia, one day India, when they look to Europe, they don't work out, is this country a, a member of the EU or not? They say, is Europe speaking, Europe, not the EU, is Europe speaking with a single voice? If it is, we, can, we must pay attention to that. If Europe itself is divided, and Europe will be divided if Britain, France and Germany are not agreeing, then Europe as a whole will not be listened to and given the credence and the, uh, the clout that we need to have. Some people have argued that's why you have to be in the European Union because the EU speaks for Europe, and there is some truth in that. It would be naive to pretend there's no truth in that. But for better or for worse, we're likely to be leaving the European Union. The question is, South Keeper, save what you can, where it has an impact on our global impact. Britain is a country of 65 million people in a world of several billion. Uh, let's be realistic, it's not going to have more uh, clout on foreign policy uh, as a result of leaving the EU. Mm. Uh, that's just naive to suggest otherwise. So the question is, what can we safeguard uh, while getting all the benefits that Brexit uh, is supposed to, to produce? Your question also asked me on defence questions. Uh, again, uh, sorry, I'll try and be slightly briefer on that, but it's an important point. Even if the defence budget has increased substantially, which as a former defence secretary I'd love to happen, we are not going to be able to have a state-of-the-art, huge global defence capability of a kind that the British Empire once had. And it's not just because we're not long, no longer part, uh, part of an empire. It is because the UK, quite correctly, has always, unlike Russia, unlike most countries, has always said what military capability we have must be state-of-the-art, must be incorporating this modern technology. Because we want to win wars, and we want to do so with relatively modest overall military capability. Now, that's one heck of an expensive commitment. And sometimes you don't even know how much it's going to cost. So you've got to specialise. And very briefly, my judgement is that insofar as we have to specialise, more than we've done in the past, we should become more... uh, involved with our maritime role. It's our Royal Navy, it's our naval power, not for reasons of nostalgia because of the past, 
but because 90% of our trade is seaborne, uh, and, and the most dangerous places in the world are these narrow channels, the Straits of Hormuz in the Gulf, yeah, Straits exactly. of Malacca yeah. uh, between China and the rest of uh, Asia, uh, the English Channel. Uh, the, these are the places that, where we have a, a, a national security interest, and you can't meet that requirement through your army, and to a significant degree, you can't meet it through your air force. It's your navy, it's your naval power. Uh, not necessarily acting alone, hopefully working with allies that can best protect the trade routes on which our economy and our security very substantially depend. You mentioned rising powers um, such as China and potentially uh, India in a few years' time. And what do you think um, we ought to do strategically when it comes to engaging with China? Because you look at the Chinese government, some of the things they're doing, and it's just outright nefarious stuff, you know, particularly in the northwest in Xinjiang. I mean, what's the balance to be struck between real politic, a kind of George Osborne-style approach, and, uh, you know, just saying that this is outrageous, some well, of the stuff they're doing? We, we have to start, in answering your question, we have to start by asking ourselves, what is the British national interest? Mm-hmm. And to what extent does the rise of China, its emergence, not as a power, but as the other global superpower, which the Soviet Union once was, and which China now is or will be, what is the significance of that? Now, when the Soviet Union was the superpower, global superpower, we knew what the significance was. They were just the other end of Europe. Uh, They they already controlled half of Europe, including uh, half of Germany. If a war broke out or a conflict broke out, it wasn't that far from the English Channel. So there was no dis- question as to what our strategic involvement was in the consequences of Soviet power. There is still a sort of assumption, I don't want to exaggerate this, there's a sort of assumption in some quarters that China is a faraway country of which we know little, uh, in the sense that while there, its economic power is important to us, there there is no dispute, there's no naivety or misunderstanding, Everyone realises that in economic terms, what happens in China, China's trade policy, exports, imports to and from China, hugely affect Europe, not just Asia. That there's no dispute. I'm talking about the geopolitics of it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And the single most important, well, there's two significant changes that are already happening that have not got the attention they require. The first is the very dramatic growth in the power of Chinese naval part of the Chinese Navy. Mm-hmm. And that actually is incredibly new for China. It's not going back to 100 years ago. Apart from 50 or 60 years in the sort of Middle Ages, China never had an interest in having naval strength outside its own waters. Its navy was there to protect its coast. That's all it was interested in. Such has been the growth of the Chinese Navy just in the last 10, 15 years. The Chinese Navy is now operating in the Red Sea. It now has bases in Djibouti in northeast Africa. It has uh, naval f- base facilities in the Maldive Islands, uh, in Sri Lanka, in various other parts of the Indian Ocean. It's deliberately, and, and in the Pacific, it's extending its influence uh, way beyond just issues of Taiwan and the Spratly Islands or the South China Sea mm-hmm. to become the other Pacific naval power as opposed to the United States. Now, some of that, or most of, a lot of that, is primarily an American interest. I said there were two things that had happened. The other is the one that directly affects Europe, and that's called the Belt and Road Initiative. And that's the Belt and Road Initiative, these, this huge infrastructure development of trade in Central Asia, developing road, rail, uh, pipelines, and other links is mostly discussed, particularly by the Chinese, in economic terms, exports and imports, and isn't trade good, and is the Silk Road, and all that sort of thing, in in modern guise. That's all true. What is less spoken about is the huge geopolitical consequences, by which I mean that Europe and Asia, not just China, but primarily China, Europe and China, for the first time in 2,000 years, are now actually looking directly at each other through Central Asia. Up till a few years ago, all European, not just British, all European, Chinese trade and other links, you had to go around the Suez Canal, you had to go around India, you had to go around the Straits of Malacca. That's, uh, that Britain's relationship with China was entirely dependent on maritime access. And not just Britain's, the whole of Europe's. Because Central Asia was too... You know, terra incognita. It was too impossible to traverse unless you were on a camel going slowly with a few bags of uh, produce. That's totally different now. As we speak, every day of every week, there are freight trains going from eastern China across Central Asia, entering Europe, and ending up either in Germany or in the Netherlands, some linked to the UK, bringing exports. So that's uh, all the kind of freight that can be carried by rail. Uh, in addition to that, the road networks are far much uh, more usable now than ever in the past. There is air contact. And uh, if we fast forward just 5, 10, 15 years, uh, it won't be most of our trade because the bulk trade will still go by sea. It will be, although it's slower, it will be a lot cheaper. Um, but increasingly, a lot of very significant uh, contact will be through Asia. And if I make, make the comparison, think of how in the 19th century the Atlantic Ocean 
uh, was seen as something that divided America from Europe. It took the steamship in the late 19th century and air travel so that we now talk about the bridge between America and Britain or America and Europe. It's no longer, uh, it's the pond now. It's no longer a vast ocean. That's the language we ourselves use. That is now beginning to happen in relation to our relationship with China. Central Asia, the, the Stans, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, all these countries that you have to get through from China to east to, to, uh, to, to Europe eventually, are now as passable as any other countries. And therefore that has to be borne in mind in considering uh, whether the United Kingdom and France and Germany uh, have as much uh, of a security interest, a defence interest, a political interest, as they have an economic and trade interest in the past. And that has not yet been properly the subject of sufficient analysis and deliberation. Do you think those trade links that you talked about there are, have the potential to mitigate the, the risk of a kind of armed flare-up if we are so interconnected commercially? Um, because it's often said that there's this theory in foreign policy that once you have two rising or two superpowers, well, they inevitably will clash. No, um, this is the Thucydides uh, right, principle. Yeah, Thucydides trap. Yeah. Often called like what happened with Athens and Sparta. Uh, that are, and especially, of course, the example is the Kaiser, uh, Germany under the Kaiser, that led to the First World War. Mm. A rising power gets inevitably into conflict uh, because it, it can only benefit at the expense of those who already had the power. Uh, and that leads to conflict. Now, I, I, I understand the point. There's a degree of uh, persuasion in it, but uh, we're living in a very different world. Uh, first of all, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, you cannot contemplate any major war between China, the United States, Russia, Europe, uh, without that having at least a huge risk if not a certainty, at least a huge risk of it developing into a nuclear exchange, where everyone, I think, recognises, apart from a few lunatics, um, that there are no winners or losers, as opposed to losers. The whole world would suffer uh, to a fantastic level of mass destruction, with economies destroyed on both sides. So that never existed, either for Thucydides or in 1914, so-called. Uh, it exists now. And that, I think, is one factor. Uh, I think also, on the less optimistic side, um, it was always naive to believe that because countries not only trade with each other, but sometimes their trade is crucially important to their welfare, therefore they will never have political conflict or go to war with each other. It sounds good. It sounds logical. But I was once told that logic was the art of going wrong with confidence. Uh, logic is not the only. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, logic is not the only consideration that drives governments and foreign policies and the relations between states. Uh, emotion, uh, perception of national interests, uh, history, culture mm. are all factors that can either aggravate or minimise uh, the problems that exist between two, two countries. Uh, that has to be borne in mind. Especially with China, I think they have this. I don't think people in the West maybe realise they have this sense of themselves as even in literally embedded in their language as the central country. Well, yes, but uh, to be fair to the Chinese, um, the, the, that was a product 
of the last 2,000 years, yeah. when, uh, apart from their immediate neighbours, who were relatively weak, uh, they were cut off from the rest of the world anyway. Uh, the idea that you know, the Middle Kingdom and China had this uh, f- fundamental supremacy uh, only made sense when the countries that they were talking about were Korea, Vietnam, uh, and other relatively smaller states uh, around them. Now, even then, it might not have been justified, but that was their imperialist approach. Uh, I don't think the Chinese today, uh, certainly not those conducting foreign policy and in charge of their international relations, think in quite those terms. Mm. And now, I mean, you were in office when uh, we handed over Hong Kong to the Chinese. We returned. Returned. Returned, I should say. Mrs. Thatcher would make me say that if I had ever been tempted to say otherwise. It was the consequence of the treaty, the original treaty under which we controlled uh, Hong Kong colony was meant to be forever, but Mm. the new territories without which Hong Kong couldn't survive were only for 100 years. So that's why, in reality, there was no choice. I mean, and just a quick plug for Sir Malcolm's CapEx piece on the above. Um, You've written for us about what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, I mean, how concerned are you by what you've seen in the last few weeks and months? Well, I'm concerned about a specific development. I mean, in the, the initial high drama and incredibly impressive drama was when the people of Hong Kong and their hundreds of thousands, some said even up to a couple of million, came out onto the streets and effectively destroyed the attempt to impose the extradition bill which uh, the uh, Hong Kong executive, undoubtedly with the support of Beijing, were trying to push forward. Now, that was a fantastic success. Uh, What disturbs me is that since then, a very significant number of Hong Kong people, but a relatively small minority of the total, by which I mean we're talking about perhaps tens of thousands as opposed to (laughs) millions, have been continuing the protests, which they're entitled to do in terms of the merits of what they're arguing for, but they are uh, using methods which I'm not sure what the end result is intended to be. Because if you uh, invade LegCo, the parliament building in Hong Kong, and spray it with graffiti and vandalize some of its contents, but even more serious, if they then attack the symbols of Chinese sovereignty in Hong Kong. I can understand why they're doing it. Uh, I admire them as individuals, but I have to question their judgment. Um, Because Beijing, uh, Xi Jinping and his colleagues, not only have legal sovereignty, they have overwhelming military and political power. And the initial success of the protesters in getting the extradition bill dropped was not only a huge and welcome success, for which massive credit to the people involved, but one of the byproducts of that was inevitably humiliation for Beijing. It's for the most serious defeat they had sustained since the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. Okay, that they have to live with. That was their misjudgment that brought that about. What they are unlikely to be able to tolerate is, uh, as it were, permanent revolution in Hong Kong of a kind that we have been seeing. Now, the alternatives for them are not that easy. I mean, they could, in theory, send the People's Liberation Army into Hong Kong any day. 
and they would win, there's no question about it, but they would themselves pay a huge price because Hong Kong is not Tiananmen Square. It's not just one relatively small uh, central area of one city. It is a colony of millions of people who would uh, conduct civil disobedience and who would be hugely difficult to govern. But in addition to that, the destruction of two systems in one country, which that would imply, uh, would also damage their strategy in relation to Taiwan. Because what the Chinese would like to persuade the people in Taiwan is, why don't you be like Hong Kong? You can accept your part of China, uh, but still continue uh, to have your own internal system. Now, the Taiwanese have always been pretty sceptical about that, and in my view, with some reason. Um, but you know, that would completely be kiboshed. So it's not easy for China, but at the end of the day, if Beijing is forced to choose, I fear, and I hope I'm wrong, I fear they would rather suppress Hong Kong and the current protest movement than live with the increasing humiliation of effectively a, an anarchic uh, Hong Kong that would not accept that they were now part of China, legally, if not uh, with the same system. Do you think prior to these protests the Chinese strategy was a kind of death by a thousand cuts, you know, to just gradually bring Hong Kong into the Chinese mainstream? Uh, well, I, wouldn't, I know what you're saying, and I don't basically disagree with you, but I put it slightly differently. Uh, the Chinese signed a treaty which was to last 50 years, and 22 years have expired. And China always thinks in the long term. So having to wait 28 years for the two systems uh, concession mm. to expire uh, would not be uh, in itself unrealistic or impossible. Where you are right is that what they have done since 1997 they haven't f fundamentally overthrown the two systems uh, structure, but they've tried to erode it. They've tried to nibble away at some of it. And it's where they've been particularly uh, dangerous is in relation to rule of law considerations. If you go to Hong Kong today, after 22 years as part of uh, China, it's still totally different. It's still a different system to China's. Uh, you still have the rule of law, you have in independent courts, you have a broadly independent press, the internet is available to everyone, it's not totally censored as in mainland China. People of Hong Kong can, broadly speaking, say what they like, can read what they like, travel when they wish, are not subject to arbitrary arrest. So th that aspect of two systems in one country has been respected, not with enthusiasm, but has nevertheless survived. But at each stage, Beijing, either directly or indirectly through its allies in Hong Kong, have tried to erode some of these freedoms. And that's why I've been one of the strongest supporters of uh, Hong Kong uh, reacting in, in a very fundamental way, and so far being very successful in preventing much of, of that. But you still get, uh, for example, the notorious example of the Hong Kong bookseller who was kidnapped and uh, taken to China in breach of all legal uh, rules and so forth. So it's, it's a pretty uh, uh, sensitive situation, which is why the judgments that have to be used are not just judgments by Beijing as to the way in which two systems has to be respected. There has to also to be mature judgments within Hong Kong 
as to how far they can challenge China's ultimate sovereignty, not because they don't have a moral right to do so, but because at the end of the day they cannot resist China's military and political power. Um, and just to finish off, we're going to return to the um, domestic arena. Uh, looks quite likely we might have a general election later on this year, and that's or earlier on this year. Or, uh, yeah, well, in, in in the autumn, shall we say? I'm not trying to jump any guns. Um, now it's obviously going to be about Brexit, but it's also going to be a pretty fundamental ideological clash much like 2017, between people who basically back free markets and people who don't on the Labour side. I mean, when you were in office in the Cabinet, or even latterly as an MP, um, could you have imagined this kind of basic debate being recapitulated? Well, first of all, you you said that the general election would be basically about Brexit. Mm. Uh, Yes, that will be certainly true, if the general election takes place before October the 31st. Uh, If uh, Mr Cummings and people like him turned out to be correct in suggesting that we might very well have a situation where the government could end up being defeated on a motion of no confidence uh, and have a general election, but deliberately, for their own tactical reasons, uh, make the date after October the 31st, then the general election would not be about Brexit. It would be about uh, holding to account a government responsible for the gravest constitutional uh, crisis and the um, total disrespect for our constitution that we have seen for generations. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't think it is going to happen. I think Boris Johnson is far too sensible to put himself, and indeed Buckingham Palace, into such a situation, because it would be an enormous controversy. Let me just say a word about that, if I may, because it's crucial at this particular moment in time that there should be clarity. I think that the government's view under Boris Johnson that if we can't get the deal we like, we should go for no deal, is an entirely respectable, uh, proper policy... I don't personally agree with it, that's not the point. Um, But I think it's an entirely respectable and responsible policy if that's the the view held by senior ministers, which it clearly is. And what we've been told is that the government would prefer to have concessions made by the European Union that would allow it to have a deal with the EU. That also is quite responsible. It is perfectly obvious they're not going to get these concessions. Uh, and the Prime Minister must know that already, uh, that on things like the Irish backstop and so forth, barring a miracle, and I'll be as happy as anyone if, if there is such a miracle, but barring a miracle, that is not going to happen. Uh, therefore, the Prime Minister at some stage, and the sooner the better, will have to report to Parliament that sadly he cannot d- deliver a deal because the EU, rightly or wrongly, will not make concessions. And he'll say, my view is we must now go for a new deal. An entirely responsible position, one he's made very clear. Under our system, we are a parliamentary democracy. That then has to be put to members of parliament. Are you willing to support that? It's possible. MPs might. They haven't up till now. It's possible. People are so fed up with the whole subject and want it all resolved uh, that a number of MPs from 
government and opposition might support the government in that view, but the general expectation is that that will not be carried. If the Prime Minister believes in no deal, and if he cannot persuade Parliament to support him, he does have an entirely legitimate way forward, which is to say, well, normally Parliament would have the last word, but we do from time to time, in situations of crisis, have general elections, so the electorate can have the last word. That's what a general election is about, particularly if you've lost a motion of no confidence. That is what the election is then all about, so that the public can say either we support the government and not the way the MPs voted, or alternatively. If we're into that kind of territory, <laughs> I shouldn't have to say this, it's absurd to have to make the point, because it's so self-evident. The idea that you deliberately manipulate the timing of that election to remove from the electorate any ability to decide the issue on which that election is being fought is not only irresponsible and unconstitutional, but it would poison British politics. And not just politics, it would poison our society uh, for a generation. Regardless of the merits of Britain, this is not about Brexit any longer. This is how you resolve a fundamental crisis in your country, which happens at the moment to be Brexit, but it could be something quite different. And so uh, I, I think we're in very dangerous territory, not on the basis of what the Prime Minister said. He's never said anything yet implying that he would do that. But his senior aide, Mr Cummings, certainly has, and he's not been slapped down by Number 10 Downing Street, and a lot of people um, seem to believe that what he says is his master's voice. So that, at the very least, has to be clarified very, very, very soon. Um, otherwise, we are in uncharted waters of a very profound kind, not because of Brexit, but because of, if it turned out to be true, a willingness to ensure that neither Parliament nor the electorate could have the final say on the Brexit issue, that the government has decided this, and so it shall be. Well, that happens in some countries around the world. We don't normally admire them when they behave like that. Indeed. There is a theory that the kind of focus on Dominic Cummings is a kind of tactic to take the heat off Boris Johnson. What a tactic by whom? <laughs> <laughs> Number 10 themselves? Well, it, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to offer a view on that. I simply haven't the faintest idea. Mr Cummings yeah, is all a bit, well, is a bit too Machiavellian. Mr Cummings has form. He's, not, he's, he's never hidden his views. He's perfectly entitled to have views. But when the, the unelected aide becomes the news story, then the government itself is weakened. Hmm. Because if, the, if, if there is a story, if there is a message to put out, it should be put out either by the Prime Minister or by senior ministers. Mm. I mean, coming back to the other sort of part of my question, I mean, do you think we, as a website, uh, and here at the Centre for Policy Studies, where we're housed, you know, we like to make the, the case for markets and capitalism, all that yes. good stuff. Yes. I mean, where do you think 
that case is clearly not being won at the moment, given the number, especially oh, younger people who seem to have been... Sure, but I wouldn't get too depressed about that. No. No, no, I, what I, do you I, think I, we need to do to make I, those arguments okay. afresh? Right, right. It is very important to go back to the origins of the capitalist system and how governments responded, both in Britain and in the United States, as capitalism emerged as the most successful economic theory that delivered the goods. Right from the very beginning, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom and other countries, there was a recognition that you could not have unbridled capitalism. That while capitalism, the system itself, broadly served the national interests, the interests of individual capitalists and of individual companies was to make profits for their shareholders. And while that, in broad terms, worked to the national interest, in individual cases it very often didn't, at least to some degree. And that is why, in the United States, for example, they developed, I think it was the end of the 19th century, antitrust legislation. And we developed, in the United Kingdom, monopolies commissions, because there was a recognition that capitalism, uncontrolled, uh, would have a tendency towards monopoly, which would itself destroy competition or limit competition, and the net effect would be against the national interest. Uh, likewise, uh, as we in the 20th century, not just under left-wing governments, but under conservative governments as well, have recognised the need uh, for health and safety legislation, for uh, environmental standards, nowadays climate change obviously is relevant to this, uh, that these matters cannot just be left to individual company corporate choice. So you're not being hostile to capitalism, by constraining the capitalists when required to do so in the wider national interest. Now you have to combine what I've just said with the additional fact that as we have moved towards globalisation, not as a conscious policy, but almost as a product of the technological and other opportunities that now exist, there have been losers as well as gainers. Some communities have lost, some Employees in particular industries have lost. Some other consequences have been very controversial in individual countries, and that has required government action. So I would say that the history of capitalism is not one of unrestrained economic success with governments not interfering with everyone applauding uh, as uh, they proceeded. It's always been controversial because it had to compete with socialism and communism uh, for almost 100 years. And communism and socialism have now, as economic theories, effectively disappeared. Some countries like China call themselves communists but aren't. Um, so w what you now have is not a fundamental challenge to the capitalist system. What we've seen in the last 30 years is not just in Eastern Europe and in China, various forms of capitalism now becoming the dominant system but even countries like India, which during the Cold War were very reluctant to get beyond bureaucratic socialist structures, now realising that the quicker you get rid of that, the better. And the same is true in Latin America. So if we have now emerging economies like Brazil, like India, uh, like Thailand, like other countries in Southeast Asia, including Vietnam, it is essentially using capitalist models, although rather like China, sometimes it's with their own national characteristics. So I don't think there is a fundamental challenge to the capitalist system. I think we're having a perfectly understandable debate about what is the level, what is the degree to which the state in the United Kingdom 
should intervene more than it's been intervening over the last 20, 30 years? Uh, in my own personal view, the answer is not very much. Uh, but there may very well be areas where it makes sense. But what you, I mean, think on the global scale, you're right that capitalism is in the ascendancy, but I, I meant more in terms of the, the fact that the Labour Party is led by someone who oh, does yes. disavow oh, yes. those things. Well, I mean, the problems we have with the Labour Party under Mr Corbyn, uh, where, where do we start? Uh, I mean, it's, but essentially it's not because Corbyn and his colleagues have some well-thought-through alternative ideology. Uh, one or two of them do have. It's called Marxism. <laughs> or old-fashioned socialism, and they've never forgotten it. They've learnt nothing and forgotten nothing, you know. Uh, but it doesn't actually make them popular, so far as we can tell, with the public. Mm. Uh, it's not exactly as if they are miles ahead of an unpopular Conservative government. The Conservative government is very unpopular, but it's still leading in the opinion polls, uh, which says something about Mr Corbyn. Um, so the, the real risk to the United Kingdom is not of some Corbyn-led Labour government that is triumphant in the polls. It is that as a result of an perhaps unnecessary general election, uh, Labour ends up as the largest minority party. Because what all the clever tacticians around the Prime Minister, so far as I can tell, don't seem to be taking it sufficiently into account. All the talk is about how we either hold or win back uh, votes from the Brexit party and come them, bring them back into the Conservative fold, all of which makes a great deal of sense. But what we have also seen in the last year, I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier, is the resurgence of the Liberal Democrats. And in the, large, the largest number of Conservative seats in the home counties, in the West Country, in the South of England, the party that comes second isn't the Labour Party or indeed the Brexit Party, it's the Liberal Democrats. And we saw this in the uh, by-election a week or so ago, but we also see it in the national opinion polls, where the Liberal Democrats, having uh, been at 8, 9, 10% for two or three years, are now running at 20% and sometimes more than that. So if you have a general election on which Brexit is a fundamental issue, and I'm not going into the merits of Brexit here, I'm just talking about the politics of it. If you have a general election where Brexit is a major issue, it's not just do we win seats back from for, uh, votes back from Farage. That will be relatively easy if the government's taking a hardline position on Brexit. Why should people vote for Farage? They don't need to if they're being offered it by the government. Um, but that very strategy uh, will alienate not all, perhaps not even a majority, but a very substantial minority of people who are otherwise conservative voters. And, you know, I uh, was... Uh, formerly the MP for Kensington, a seat uh, which, not under <laughs> during my period, but subsequently, has been lost to the Labour Party. It's now a Labour seat, Kensington. Who would have imagined that? It didn't happen because the Labour vote went dramatically up. It was lost, because I've studied the detail, because a significant minority of Conservative voters didn't vote Labour. On Brexit, they voted Liberal Democrat. And the Liberal Democrats had no chance of winning, but the net effect of that loss of votes to the Liberal Democrats was that Labour came through the middle. Uh, and uh, that's not... I happen to mention Kensington because it's a place I know best, but it happened in uh, various other areas as well. So it would be pretty... Uh, <laughs> let me not exaggerate my language. It would be pretty sad 
if in a general election fought to deliver the Brexit uh, policy, uh, we ended up losing, let us say, 40, 50 seats to the Liberal Democrats throughout uh, mostly in England. Uh, We lost uh, the dozen seats we now have in Scotland uh, to either Labour or the Nationalists because of the views on Brexit in that part of the country. And uh, as a consequence, Corbyn, even marginally, even by two or three seats, was ahead of the Conservatives at the end of the day. That would be Ted Heath all over again. That's what happened when Ted Heath called the general election on the miners' strike and uh, ended up uh, with slightly fewer seats in the Labour Party. And the result was a Labour government. I think okay, that leads me nicely into my genuinely final question. If we can give a, a pithy response. I mean, how, how optimistic are you about the future, either in the UK and the world in general? Well, I was once told the difference between the optimist and the pessimist is the pe- pessimist believes things couldn't be worse and the optimist knows they could be. So in that sense, I'm uh, one of the world's optimists. Um, I ask myself uh, what uh, le- level of influence not the United Kingdom would like to have, but what does it deserve to have, whether it's in the EU or outside it, and particularly if it's outside it, because that's where we're likely to be. And I conclude with the view that the answer is quite significant, really, you know, because you not only have all the normal things that people regularly say, we're a member of the Security Council, we're a nuclear weapon state, we have the Commonwealth, we have the English language, and all these factors, and significant military capability. All of which is true. But on top of that, essentially what the world needs, and we're not the only country that can supply it, but we're one of very few. What the world needs is uh, there should be significant influence in respect of countries that have a a long and unbroken tradition of providing stable government combined with the rule of law, respect for human rights and economic prosperity. And it's not because we're any more virtuous than anybody else, it's partly because we're an island, it's partly because we've been a very lucky island. Um, we are one of the very few countries, and if you don't accept that, I'd simply ask you to offer suggestions of who else. I mean, there are other countries, but they tend to be very small, like Switzerland or uh, whatever. Um, but there are very few relatively major countries that have that tradition. And that's what the world desperately needs. And sadly, uh, as long as Mr. Trump's in power in the White House, the Americans will not be seen as the obvious spokesman for a rule of law, human rights, uh, and responsible, stable government and rules-based society. Um, So the UK ought to be filling what might otherwise be a significant vacuum. Uh, And that's what I hope will happen.